Today on Security Science, vulnerability disclosure and responsible exposure. Hello and thanks for joining us. I'm Dan Mellinger and today we're discussing a hot button issue in the cybersecurity industry, a responsible disclosure of vulnerabilities and exploits. So this should be a good one. Uh, with me is the holy spirit of risk-based vulnerability management, Kenneth Security founder, <laughs> co-founder and CTO, Ed Bellis. What's up, Ed? That's a really nice one, Dan. I, I didn't even have to modify it. <laughs> I know, I know. I thought that was a fun one. Um, I just watched uh, some South Park episodes. So nice. anyway, anyone who knows that tie-in, it was a good two-part series. Uh, <laughs> I do want to note that uh, we're digging in here. So this is based off of part of the Prioritization to Prediction Volume 6 research. And specifically, we did a blog, actually, uh, that you drafted, Ed, called Responsible Exposure and what it means for the industry. So overall, there's been this kind of hot button issue on what is responsible disclosure? Um, how should people work with vendors, work with software makers, work with researchers to disclose vulnerabilities publicly, right? Um, you know, there's always been this kind of undercurrent that I guess publishing vulnerabilities and or proof of concept exploits makes people in general less safe, but it also may be necessary on the other side to get some vendors or software makers to patch stuff. So we want to dig in because as far as we know, I think this is the first time there's any quantification of what's some of the actual ramifications um, of publishing, you know, before, after exploitation um, occurs. So we're going to dig into this one part of it. So I will link to the blog and the P2P report. So if you want to go do some digging into all the fun charts, you can follow along. Yeah. And, and absolutely. And, and just to clarify, right, there's disclosure of vulnerability and there's also disclosure of exploit and, and really while we, we looked at some of the evidence of disclosure as part of this, we're really focusing a lot on kind of our disclosure of vulnerability. We're focusing a lot on that disclosure of exploit here, too. Yeah. And just to clarify um, to the audience, because that's a really good point to, to mention, you know, a lot of people kind of confuse the two. I know I do from time to time, but the vulnerability is the actual flaw in software. The exploit is how you make use of that. And so there's a pretty big difference from when a vulnerability is disclosed, right? Like a CVE, right? People know that, hey, there is a flaw that exists versus an exploit, which makes people easily able to take advantage of it, right? So just because a CVE exists, as we know, doesn't necessarily mean it is exploitable or should even be worried about in some cases, other cases, it should be the first thing you think about in that morning, right? Um, but the exploit is really one of those kind of go moments. If there's an exploit available and people know about it, typically you want to concern yourself with that one, right? Yep, yep. And, and, and actually, we've seen as evidence in some of our other, uh, even P2P research, right? We've seen evidence that uh, in fact, even just kind of monitoring the data that's fed into our platform, we've seen evidence that once an exploit, uh, a weaponized exploit of some sort or a POC is disclosed, that is a very much a leading indicator to that actually being used in the wild, as you would expect. Absolutely. Well, and Michael and the Scientia, right, uh, the EPSS exploit prediction scoring system, that's the whole point is to look for if POC code exists, it's a highly correlating factor that there will likely 
be some kind of activity on that in the next 12 months. So who knew that if you published it, they would be, they would use it. <laughs> Weird, right? Um, well, while we talk about publishing, Ed, do you mind going over like, what's the typical responsible disclosure process? Like how does that typically function? Um, and in general, what we found in P2P V6 actually typically works correctly most of the time. Yeah, in fact, it's remarkable. The evidence that came out of that, it's like the vast majority of the time there is a there's very clear evidence of a what I would call uh, just to stay away from the hot hot button word of responsible, a coordinated disclosure uh, that happens right where the researcher who discovered the, the flaw. Uh, as well as the vendor who is affected by it, as well as the vulnerability assessment vendors, as well as the IDS, IPS vendors, all seem to be working together and know about this before some sort of public publication. Um, and, and we see very much a lot of evidence around that. So, you know, kind of typical process that you ultimately see, and I'll just throw out the example of, you know, researcher finds a, a vulnerability, maybe it's uh, with a large vendor that everybody uses and likely has some sort of either vulnerable disclosure, uh, a VDP program or VDP process or a bug bounty or something like that, where they have this method that they're able to communicate with the team of the vendor there to disclose what they found, um, some back and forth and questioning around, you know, how it gets used and that sort of thing. Uh, but then ultimately they'll intake that in. And then if everything is working right, they, they get that prioritized. They start working on it as they get closer to a fix or a patch is usually the case. They are probably reaching out and coordinating with these other vendors that we talked about, the vulnerability assessment uh, vendors, the IDS, IPS vendors, et cetera, so that they're prepared to actually create the signatures that are needed to identify the flaw, to block the exploit and all of that sort of thing. Got it. And just so everyone's clear on their uh, IDS and IPS vendors how companies basically find these kind of vulnerabilities, right? Is they go scan and to even scan and find these vulnerabilities in your environment, you need to have some kind of a, a signature, right? That they look for. And so that needs to be developed typically by security vendors, right? Um, and they are not aware unless the software vendor itself typically pushes out, hey, there's this known vulnerability, here's a CVE, here's the details. Yep. And then obviously some vendors are better than others at this, uh, both on the, the kind of patching and coordinated disclosure side, but then also on the, uh, the, uh, the assessment and defense side as well. Gotcha. So researcher and or someone, ultimately they, they figure out there's a vulnerability and sometimes they'll develop kind of a proof of concept exploit um, to notify software maker, right? So ideally next step, go let software maker know, hey, I found this whole, it's a pretty big deal, remote code executable, right? Um, you know, buffer overflow combined. We can do a lot of bad stuff with this from my my office here, right? Uh, software maker's like, oh man, that's a good one. We're going to give you money. Please don't tell anyone yet. Let's go work on a patch. And then once they get the patch developed, they'll go ultimately... Um, let all the other security vendors know so people can go identify and then apply the patch. And then ideally all of this is happening behind closed doors until they get the patch and everything available. And then they'll make it public. Researcher can go live. They get a ton of internet points and everyone's happy, right? And maybe some cash if it's a good enough bounty. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. I did want to note, 
why this is a hot button is there are some caveats to this process, right? So what happens if that kind of vulnerability detail leaks before uh, a patch can get out there, right? Um, another piece is what if these evil software makers just, they don't care, they don't respond, they're like, this is a non-issue, or worst case, they're like, you know, just don't say anything, right? What, what do you do in that case? And then um, what if there's evidence, another caveat, right? What if people, researchers are actually seeing evidence that a bad guy already found this and they're using it actively across the internet already before uh, the software vendor really knows what's going on. So those are some kind of, some of the caveats to this process, right? Yeah. And I would, you know, add to that, that it can get really complicated, right? And, and all those scenarios you mentioned are probably different ways to react to that, right? The Probably the biggest problem is if you have a, a software vendor who is literally just ignoring you and not doing anything, I can understand that that's going to be really frustrating for the researcher, but that's also going to be really frustrating for people to find out for all those people that are using that software that, hey, I'm being vul I'm vulnerable to this. Turns out maybe it's something that I care about, but you don't. Um, and that's that's a difficult problem. Now, the you know, something being exploited in the wild already. Um, you know, there's some ways to coordinate around that. I think, you know, certainly Microsoft and others do a pretty good job about alerting people that patching out of band, you know, escalating uh, instances like that. But not everybody's that good about that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think what's interesting about all this is, you know, there's this kind of inherent, like if I was a researcher and I found this and it was in, say, like, uh, a Microsoft product because let's face it, they have the highest volume, right? Overall, right? And I know it's pretty bad. It, it could be uncomfortable too, just to have that sitting out there and you know about it for a period of time, right? Um, I think Google's Project Zero, right? They set a, a pretty rigid 90 day deadline, right? Respond and uh, within this time frame, or we go public with it, right? Yeah, well, it's not even though I think they have a, uh, they they do something around fix as well, right? You have to have a patch within X amount of time frame, not just respond. Yeah, one of their, uh, we'll link to their Project Zero, their kind of uh, timelines as well. But in general, yeah, they from the time they notify a company about uh, a flaw, a vulnerability, they give them 90 days. And the only way to extend that is if there will be a patch available within like, I think, 14 days past that 90 day, right? So the software vendor is like, oh, my 90 days came up and... Oh, we're going to get a patch out soon. Two weeks, right? Two business weeks. <laughs> uh, they'll they'll extend it kind of that way. But um, in that way, you know, they're, it's interesting because that's ultimately where the debate lies. Why this is a hot button. Is that good? If a software vendor doesn't uh, ultimately respond, is it better that the world knows that the vulnerability exists or is security through, you know, obscurity um, a viable tactic in that in that debate, right? Yeah. And and I'll I'll answer this with a big giant gray. It depends. <laughs> um, it, to me, I, I guess if they are not responding at all, that's that's one thing. If they are responding, and to your point, oh, we'll give you an extra fourteen days. Well, what if it takes eighteen days or twenty days or seventeen days? To me. I'd much rather it not be disclosed, even if it's 17 days or 18 days or a month, 
versus being disclosed. And, you know, you hear a lot of arguments about, yeah, but it's better for people to know that they're vulnerable to this so they can do something to protect themselves, even if it's not a patch. And I think that's great for the security one percenters, right? But for 99% of the companies out there, they don't have the resources available to them to even one, figure out what they could do and then actually employ what it is that they could do that's not a patch. Yeah, yeah, that that requires hyper proactive compensating control, shutting off ports, all sorts of like workarounds, right? The majority of companies in the world don't even have a security team. So you're going to tell me that they're going to put in a bunch of compensating or mitigating controls around this vulnerability that they don't, they can barely understand. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not would be my guess. <laughs> um, I mean, it's super interesting. And that's why we kind of get into the whole, uh, I, I guess, uh, responsibility air quotes, right? Um, so what is the responsible thing to do? And, you know, we're going to kind of dig in a little bit because we actually have some data that shows at least the outcomes. Uh, I don't think we're making like a call on ethics or whatnot, but we have a data set. We have some evidence from a quantifiable standpoint that, uh, there's there's some actual repercussions <laughs> that happens when it comes to timelines of exploitation. So uh, let's dig into it. Right. This is there such a thing as responsible disclosure? You know, how does the sequence of disclosure events impact the overall security? And what are the consequences of releasing vulnerability details ahead of mitigations? Right. Those are the three things we're kind of looking at. So I'll go back and call out that we did this work in P2P volume, volume six. We looked at. 473 vulnerabilities from 2019. And we did that because we were finally able to see evidence of exploitation for all 473 of those. And we were able to look at them over a 15 month period. So we could use hindsight and really nail down this very specific sample. And from there, we looked at the life cycle, right? So there's a couple key activities. One of vulnerabilities discovered, which we typically never know about, right? There's not a good way to identify that. One is CVE res is reserved, and that happens first pretty much 100% of the time because CVEs are reserved well in advance. They may Sometimes not even- in bulk. In yeah. bulk, right? Microsoft, they they have a direct line as a CNA. They, you know, we can just publish these at will. So it typically happens um, first in almost every single sequence, and it's because it's not, uh, addressing anything specific at the time that it's reserved, right? It's just sitting there waiting to uh, to be filled. From there, we get CVE published. And that's actually a big deal, right? That That's typically a, a go mode. That's where the, you know, the, the majority of the details of the vulnerability are actually disclosed out to the world at that point, right? And people, even if there isn't an exploit, people know that there is a way in and they could start proactively trying to develop an exploit as well if their one isn't public, right? Oh, for sure. You see it all. I mean, there, there's a reason why it, they call it Patch Tuesday and Exploit Wednesday, right? They they go out and they'll, they'll patch or they'll, dis, they'll, they'll disclose all those vulnerabilities on Patch Tuesday. And then there's a whole series of people out there that are trying to reverse those patches and figure out how to exploit those vulnerabilities. Yep. And then from there... Uh, what next big milestone this is a good one when a patch is released so hopefully that's happening roughly around the same time that the cve's published which i mean when we did look back that's happening the vast majority of the time which is great um then we have what you were talking about ids ips when these vulnerabilities are first detected in a company environment right so now it's not theory this exists there's a signature 
vulnerability scanner found this thing and it exists in a business, right? Yep. So that's the next big one. That's when you're like, oh, this applies to me now. <laughs> now I need to figure out what I should do about it. And then the last and worst part of this is when it's exploited in the wild, which we do have uh, stats to show for all 473 of these vulnerabilities. Yep. Yep. And and while not part of the vulnerability lifecycle per se, um, there is also, which we'll talk about later, things that shift all of these things around is usually precursor, not always, but precursor to first evidence of exploit in the wild is actually some sort of publicized or published exploit, right? Much like a published vulnerability, you actually publish the details of how to exploit this vulnerability. Absolutely. And that could be actually harder to nail down as well, because sometimes um, uh, we did an episode with Jay Jacobs, right? Sometimes the exploits are published to GitHub and people yep. are just finding this a, stuff. A lot a of lot. times they're published to yeah. GitHub. Now more than ever. Um, so sometimes these, uh, actually a lot of the time, uh, it's hard to nail down when an exploit is actually developed per se, right? Because it could be dark web. Um, typically these things are found in marketplaces. Um, yeah. So that, that's a harder one to nail down definitively from a data set perspective, just because they can be anywhere, including places that are harder to track down. Um, but what's interesting is when you look at the top 10 kind of sequences, right? And there's hundreds of these permutations, but we're looking at out of the 473, like what was the sequence of events? What happened? And 16%, so 15.9% of the time, CVEs reserved, which is kind of a given. That's always going to be first. A patch is available, which is awesome. It's seen by Vuln scanners. So that means a patch is available. You scanned it and you have it. And then the CVEs published, right? So that means that security disclosure is working very well, right? That is a highly coordinated disclosure when, when it goes in that order. Yeah. And when we're looking at these, this all of these events are typically happening within a two-day period, right? So it's all happening boom, boom, boom. Things are working as they should. We would call this, I guess, a responsible disclosure, right? Um, coordinated. Coordinated, coordinated. <laughs> there we go. Uh, CYA. Um, but companies are getting patches, right? They're getting published. Um, the security vendors are able to update their signatures and their scanners so companies can go find this stuff, right, and apply those patches. And then the CV is published, and now it's kind of the race to go patch, right, ultimately is how that goes. And then we see our first exploitation in the wild, right? So soon to follow. Um, I will say that out of all these permutations, you go down to number 10 and 2.3% of the time, at least out of this data set in 2019, it goes from CVE reserved to exploited in the wild. And there's some ramifications to this, this piece, right? So ultimately, this is kind of the big takeaway to uh, the P2P v6 reports, but when exploit code is released after the patch, defenders, you know, they typically have momentum, right? They're patching all instances of a specific vulnerability faster than attackers can really exploit it. And they hold that advantage for roughly eight months, right? So they're, they're beating the speed to remediate. Um, what's interesting and first of its kind, as far as we know, and no one's come forward yet to say that they've done this research before us, 
Ed, what happens when exploit code is released before a patch is available? Yeah, um, to probably none of our surprises, it, you know, it, it was bad for defenders. Um, and, and to clarify this a bit, right? So when we're measuring defenders, uh, kind of we're looking at uh, their velocity of, of remediation here, right? So a patch obviously comes out. Um, they start scanning for that vulnerability, finding that vulnerability in their environment, pushing out that patch. And we basically looked at how long it took them to get to 100%. And 100% meaning here's all the vulnerabilities you found and how 100% of those are patched, right? Um, and it's almost the res if you're looking at, you know, P2P V6, it's almost the reverse of a survival curve in that sense, right? You're jumping way up. We see a bunch of people start identifying vulnerabilities and then remediating them pretty quickly out of the gate. We also measured the attackers, right? And so uh, in this case, what we're measuring is, you know, how many times we saw evidence of this exploitation event in the wild, right? And how long did it take for the attackers to get to 100% of those attacks? Again, in this 15 month window, that we were looking at. Um, and when, to your point, Dan, when an exploit was published prior to the patch, we saw on average a 47 day shift to the left for attackers, meaning they had a 40, a 40, effectively a 47 day head start where their velocity was faster than the defenders. Of course, that's that's going to be kind of a no brainer for a while, right? Because I don't have a patch yet, so I can't fix anything. And the attackers have already started. They got this exploit that they can start to use. But it was actually a significant jump uh, for the for the the attack side of the house. Yeah, that's really interesting. And to to kind of recap what Ed was saying, like using hindsight, right? That's why we limited the range to 15 months. And that's why we limited it to 2019, because now we had the full body of attack exploit events, right? So individual attacks, we know this is how many times, uh, you know, malicious, bad actors, whatever hackers actually engaged in attack here's the total volume and so we treated that as the population of zero to 100 percent and we could see the timeline that it took them to do execute all 100 percent of those attacks right and on the same vein we could also see every single company that uh, scanned and identified that they had these same exact vulnerabilities and how fast were they able to get to 100 percent patch rate out of all of this over the 15 month period right and so, uh, Ed, to your point, it's super interesting, right? When the exploit code is released after the patch, right? The second that the patch is available, businesses go ham, right? <laughs> I think they patch within the first month or up to almost 50%, right? They, they patched actually faster than I even had realized, right? They, they, and, and to be fair, we're looking at a subset of all the vulnerabilities from 2019 that had exploits associated with them, right? So theoretically, you're look, you're talking about the high risk ones of 2019, right? But organizations actually were, we saw on average, they were patching faster than attackers were attacking, right? And it gets really interesting when you overlay the, the two graphs together to talk about momentum, but uh, I'm probably stealing some thunder here. <laughs> so one caveat and poor, right? This is our data setters, 
as well, right? For the patch data and all that good stuff. So ideally, our customers are doing this stuff because that's yeah, kind of a little what bit we of do. bias. Yeah, yeah, a little bit of bias in the data. So do want to call that out. But ultimately, it's good for us. Like that's a, this is a good outlook for us because out of 2019, these are the vulnerabilities that people should have cared about, and they got out of the gate strong and fast, and we're patching these things at a super high velocity, and overall from a momentum standpoint, they kind of had the upper hand, so to speak, for eight months, right? From the patch uh, release date, patches available date, out to eight months, they are patching at a faster velocity than hackers were exploiting these things. Even above and beyond that, even for the, so if they're, for eight months, they they were patching faster uh, than the attackers were attacking. And I would say they were actually patching significantly faster than the attackers were attacking. And the times where they, they were kind of outpaced or lost the, that momentum, it was still incredibly close, right? The, the, the amount of attacks versus the, the volume of attacks versus the volume of patching was still very close. That slightly uh, had an edge for the attacker at that time. Yeah, and this is the the whole uh, long tail of remediation problem, right? Um, same thing with exploitation uh, that we found from the early ones, right? It's really hard to get a hundred percent patch rate for anything overall, right? N- neither one of those we see ever end, right? Uh, nobody ever gets to zero for a given vulnerability, and the attackers never quite stop attacking that vulnerability. <laughs> Absolutely, because it's obviously it works or it's easier to execute or, you know, combination of factors. But yeah, there's this kind of long tail. So you do want to try to be that group that gets 100 percent patch. But that is super, super hard, nearly impossible in some cases. Um, That'll never go away, likely. Right. Um, But I mean, the big kind of shocking moment was just how much of an advantage attackers got when exploit code was released before the patch is available. And I think that's interesting because when we talk about uh, responsible and or coordinated disclosure, right, we typically think about just a CVE, right? But when we dig down, it's really patch is something you can do about it, right, as a company and exploit means something you could do about it as a hacker, right? And so looking at those two kind of uh, uh, key milestones um, just seems like a different take. And uh, anyway, Ed. Yeah, not only was it a, a shift left, uh, if you will, for the attacker when uh, publishing that exploit before the patch, um, but then they maintained that, uh, like we talked about before, I think, uh, would you say that the defender had eight months of an advantage and even when they didn't have an advantage, it was super close. As not the case when the exploit gets published before the patch, it's almost all advantage to the attacker. What was there maybe a month and a half, two months of defender advantage? And in that case, it was barely a defender advantage. And then the attackers continued to take over and, and they had a significant advantage in terms of their rate and velocity of, of exploitation versus the rate of patching. Yeah, and it's what's also interesting, and I don't think we figured this out. We might be looking into it in the next report, but having an exploit available before the patch, the patch rates for companies was significantly slower. Like they get off to a strong start as well, but then that long tail becomes a whole lot thicker. <laughs> yeah, than, yeah, for sure. Uh, on the other side, and and I would say to to your point, we are actually digging in right now for hopefully to hopefully to answer that in volume seven. We'll we'll find out. 
and there's there's some other caveats other than bias in the data set here that we should talk about, right? So we talked about the number of vulnerabilities we're actually looking at, which was the 400 and some odd exploited vulnerabilities versus the, I don't know how many in 2019 off the top of my head, maybe 18,000-ish. Yeah, I think uh, it was 18,000. The CVEs that were published that year. So it's a, it's a much smaller subset of the overall data set. And then we're narrowing that down even further and saying, okay, of those that were exploited in the wild, the ones where there was an exploit published before a patch, which is even significantly smaller. So you're dealing with a very small number of vulnerabilities here that we're talking about. Um, and we uh, we didn't dig into what those vulnerabilities were. Were these harder to patch? Were they, you know, things we had to compile as, you know, affecting Java or something where you had to do a lot of regression testing or something like that? Or was it a straightforward, you know, push button deploy of through SCCM or something. I, we don't know. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and uh, there's another caveat as well as, you know, were we only detecting this stuff because signatures existed, right? Yeah. So that means that they found it, uh, there was a disclosure process and people could actually go look for it, right? So did these exist anyway and just people didn't know about it or the systems didn't know about it, right? Yep. We'll dig into that too, although I, I'd say there's less evidence of that only because we think that if that was the case, then once the signature was published, that you would see a significant jump immediately if this was already being exploited widely, um, that suddenly people deployed the signatures and detected them, and we would not necessarily see that. So uh, a theory that we want to disprove, but uh, at least the data points to that's probably not the case. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. Well, I, I mean, and ultimately, all of this goes to show that at a minimum, uh, you know, I don't think we can really state causation yet, right? Uh, there is a correlation, though, and there's this incredible link between remediation, patch availability, and exploit development or, you know, exploitation timelines, right? So these things, these factors do share some kind of connective tissue. There is some quantifiable measurement between them um, that they relate to one another. And that just brings up the whole point that, I mean, ultimately we can see that having exploit code published before a patch is available, whatever the intentions or situation or whatever is ultimately a detriment, ultimately for defenders, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, one of the questions we raised at the end is, is at least publishing this exploit it enables the the IPS IDS vendors and folks like that to develop a signature against that so that you could block that attack. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's, you know, in theory, that's that's certainly possible. Although if you're doing coordinated disclosure with the vendor, then you would think that you could do coordinated disclosure with those vendors as well. But uh, I'll I'll let that to for other people to argue. <laughs> uh, we could go talk about that at some other point, maybe after we validated some data around it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Good point. Yeah, I mean, I mean, ultimately, there does seem to be kind of a, 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 a way to ultimately responsibly disclose. Like, I, I think this puts kind of the impetus on researchers and vulnerability discoverers and all that to really try pretty hard to get vendors to respond, right? Uh, software companies to release patches, signatures, because ultimately, like, patches need to be developed for this stuff. Otherwise, uh, you know, 
to flip it on its head. If there's no patch available and someone finds uh, exploit, hopefully not a bad guy first, right? It still puts defenders on the back foot because there's nothing they can do about it, right? Yep. Agreed. I mean, and I, again, we can go back to the beginning of our conversation where people would argue about, and this is more about disclosing the vulnerability and, you know, is that good for people? Can they, you know, start to at least help defend themselves? And, you know, we talked about, well, yes, the security one percenters can probably do that. Um, It's even less than the security one percenters when you're publishing the exploit. Yep. Oh, that makes sense. Well, I, I think at least from my kind of layman and you know how I like to simplify all this stuff so much because I'm a comms guy and don't actually have to do any of the work um, or solve any of these problems, right, is uh, ultimately software vendors. If there's legit vulnerabilities in your software, take it seriously. Make a patch. Like help your customers be safer. I know that's, you know, a lot of companies are taking that seriously. Microsoft is kind of the comeback kid story of the century, but they're still so. But there's a volume such of such a high volume. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they're so far behind. It's hard. Um, but then you know, on the other side as well, if you're a security researcher, um, don't go to Twitter first, right? Do do make a best faith effort. Work with these software companies. Um, I know it can be frustrating, um, but you know, try to be heard. Um, I, I'm sure there's tons of Slack channels and things like that where you can go leverage uh, your contacts or find someone else who's a researcher who's interested, who you know might know someone at software company. Right, make make a best effort to try to get them to take this stuff seriously as well. Right, um, I think that's ultimately how everyone can get more secure long term. We know that there's a correlation here. Do the right thing, Dan. Do the right thing. Um, awesome. Well, I, I think, Ed, do you have any uh, any last uh, takes other than do the right thing? <laughs> it's hard to beat that, but, you know. I know, it, that was it, a good close. It, it was actually, while not surprising, it was, it was refreshing to actually see data back this up because, you know, this, these types of arguments have last been going on in security for as long as I've been in security. And, but there's very few that have actually backed anything up with data. And so, and I'm really hoping actually, as we dig into those, those last questions uh, for volume seven, that we can kind of dispel some of that, but man, it was just, I highly encourage anybody to go read that report because it's pretty like like you said it's not causation necessarily but it's it's 100% clear correlation there yep absolutely well we look forward to the next piece of research as well and while we're talking about being in security for your entire lifetimes, uh, you can actually go get ISC squared credit for listening to this podcast. So go to kennasecurity.com uh, slash blog. You'll see this podcast up there and there'll be a form. So fill out your uh, ISC squared uh, email address and uh, member code and you will get credit for listening to this very podcast. So in the meantime, looking forward to uh, chatting some more, but Ed, thank you very much. Thanks, Dan.